0: is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. So, I'm guessing that the Roman Empire is not uh, a normal sort of topic of discussion. Uh, this uh, RSC in fact I suspect it turns up more at the other RSC, I loved the abbreviation when I stopped and thought about it um, so I think a little background perhaps is reasonable and I think two points I should show a picture but I'm not going to one is the size of the Roman Empire if you think about its diagonals you go from Hadrian's Wall to Iraq this is enormous absolutely colossal And in fact, it's bigger than you think it is. For this reason that the real measure of time is how long it takes people to get between two places. And the average speed of movement by land is no more than 40 kilometres a day for everything except messages that are going via uh, changes of fairly fast-moving horse. If you go by horse, you go the same speed. Just more comfortably, it's doing the walking instead of you. It's not any faster, in fact. So, we easily can do ten times that on land without even trying too hard. So, in fact, you know, four hundred kilometers a day is perfectly reasonable. So, you have to look at this space and imagine it ten times bigger than it appears to you in your imagination as you look at it. It is absolutely colossal, Um, and this has of consequences, some of which will turn up in the talk the other thing I'd say about it is that it's incredibly long lived as a state Uh, this longest diagonal well, nearly all of the empire apart, say, from Britain and Britain is only a minor appendage anyway is together as a unit for the best part of 500 years half a millennium so the time separating us from 1514, which I blessedly can't remember if we're in the early years of Henry VIII or the last years of Henry VII, but a colossally long time ago. This is not only the largest state that Western Eurasia has ever seen, it's also the longest lived state that Western Eurasia has ever seen. Uh, you have to take it seriously as a historical phenomenon, and neither its creation nor its passing are minor events. Uh, this, is, this is serious history, this thing, even if you don't know everything about it, that you'd like to. Which two observations then prompted my second introductory thought... As I sat down to think about what I might talk of in terms of refugees in the Roman Empire, and that is over this expanse of space and this expanse of time, while well, there are actually a kind of million things that one might talk about under this heading. Um, and I realized that I would have to be extremely selective. And what I've done is this really. Uh, in the first shorter part of the paper um, I've picked out a series of topics that you might say are kind of, you know, honourable mentions in dispatches stuff that one would ideally talk about uh, and which I will talk about a little without uh, discussing exhaustively by any means um, just to kind of uh, broaden out the discussion and I hope appeal to varied interests which I suspect are in the room and then in the second part of the paper I talk about what I suspect have been invited to talk about the, the kind of uh, population movements across frontiers particularly in the late period, this is the kind of stuff I cut my intellectual teeth on um, but first of all I'm going to trot you around a few, as I said honourable mentions and dispatches, important topics that would be uh, worthy of much greater treatment in their own right So Roman Empire and refugees. Well, one category immediately that comes to mind, uh, high-status political refugees. Um, Throughout its history, the empire functions as a magnet for high-status political refugees from neighbouring politics. The basic reason for this is straightforward. Uh, no political system in the first half of the first AD is uh, very stable Um, succession crises are pretty much the rule Uh, nice straightforward successions rarely if ever happen like hurricanes in Hampshire Uh, just a kind of particular case uh, early 590s this is probably the most spectacular case. Uh, son of a previous Shah of Persia uh, is pushed off the throne by a rival, comes to the Eastern Emperor Morris, uh, with some of his own supporters from Persia. It's not just uh, Roman manipulation. These Persian supporters uh, combined with extensive Roman military support put him back on the throne, this is the II uh, at cost of a very considerable peace deal in Roman favour you see the same kind of patterns in less spectacular scale on European frontiers uh, everything from um, a Germanic ruler of central Europe called Vanius in the first century AD who turns up in Tacitus to uh, a whole series of much less well-known figures who turn up in fourth-century uh, narrative sources. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I will mention my particular favourite man called Zizace, uh, who has his own group, but they are subordinate to another ruler and don't want to be so, uh, and they obtain Roman military-political support to reassert their independence uh, with a great deal of grovelling which we'll come back to in a minute, because it's an important point. The empire, wherever possible, um, and this is especially true uh, in Europe, uh, interferes drastically in the politics of its neighbours and this reception and promotion of political refugees, high-status ones, is part and parcel of that uh, the basic 4th century pattern the way that the empire runs the frontiers just to give you some context on that is that about every 20 to 25 years there's a major military intervention on most sectors of the frontier it's not planned but that's, that's the frequency as it turns out and funnily enough that's about a political generation I don't think this is an accident in fact uh, you get a major military intervention on the basis of which local Uh, and immediate military political domination is achieved in an area. The empire then promotes and demotes political leaders according to its own uh, desires and provides them with the chosen leaders with particular sets of privileges, which again are important, and I'll come back to it. Uh, in a minute. It's also closely tied in to hostage taking which is all about making agreements last of course but also has a strong element of cultural diplomacy so you're sort of training the next generation of leaders who will go back into their home societies um, once they've grown up in Roman circles the idea being that they will go back I suppose, with respect and whatever for the Roman way Uh, It doesn't always work. As with most policies, uh, that's the fun bit. Quite a lot of them go back with, as you might expect, substantial resentments about patronising Roman self-superiority and snobbery uh, and often become the leaders of resistance once they return to their home societies. So, high-status refugees... uh, closely linked into hostage taking, the way that the frontiers are run, and cultural diplomacy. Certainly, I think, worth the mention in dispatches when we're thinking about the Roman Empire and refugees. Another category, second category, that I think is certainly worth thinking about. um, Internal economic refugees within Roman society Again, there's a straightforward cause as to why this is a not-irregular phenomenon. Uh, And it's tied into the basic agricultural conditions that pertain across most of the Mediterranean-based Roman Empire. The climate in the Mediterranean is uh, tricky. It's calculated that under normal conditions, uh, harvests will fail in local areas once every five years if you're dependent on rainfall. So there is a kind of... And, of course, they don't have very uh, developed forms of agricultural technology with which to manage this climate. Um, so soils are potentially very productive, but there are going to be problems along the, along the way. We know that there are always basically subsistent shortages in this world, but every so often, really nasty famine sets in. Um, which generated substantial population displacements the pattern of movement in I think every case that we know about is always from country to town and for the simple reason that towns are storage centres and centres of distribution of food particularly in the state run uh, taxation fiscal structural sector So this pattern is very well evidenced in cases like the horrible three famine that pertained in Edessa uh, between 499 and 502 and turns up in some of the sources. Towns are also very much centres of what famine relief the Roman world was able to put together. Uh, Government structures, both local ones in towns and central ones in the empire, were fairly feeble and arthritic, as you might expect. This is where the distance comes in. Um, you know, The reaction time of state structures when they can move stuff around at 40 kilometres a day is going to be very slow, and where there aren't colossal surpluses to be moved in the first place. But both local and imperial level government did have some sense of responsibility towards it. Populations, I guess not least as taxpayers, uh, and in some of the larger senses, of course, through fear, uh, particularly in Rome and Constantinople, some of the bigger capitals. Then the potential food riots uh, was substantial, uh, and also much greater care was taken over food supplies but they could be disrupted nonetheless in these cities there's a famous incident in 359 where food shortages are generating rioting in the city of Rome and to quell the rioters an urban prefect waves his baby son up and says we're all in it together a phrase that we've heard more recently in other contexts Uh, I'm amazed he didn't get lynched actually Uh, but he didn't and it worked The effectiveness of government, local city government, and imperial-level governmental response to famine was, of course, limited by distance uh, in general and also by specific geographical features. Uh, I've stressed land movement, but what this meant is that any connection by water was much more important than it would be in the, to the modern eye. Again, when you look at maps and think about the Roman Empire, you have to think about water connections. And because ships are so much smaller, then you're not just talking sea, you're talking rivers. Uh, the world looks very different, actually, if you start thinking in terms of relatively small ships and what's accessible. Basically anywhere that's accessible by water, famine relief will be much quicker and much more effective. Um, but of course, if you're inland, that's much more of a problem. Edessa was 350 miles from anywhere that could, where grain could be shipped in from another point around the Mediterranean. That's one reason why that famine was so nasty between 499 and 502. Uh, perhaps the most famous... I don't know if any economic statistic from the Roman Empire is really famous, but anyway... <laughs> that's, <laughs> I was overstating it but a, a very interesting one that turns up in Diocletian's Price's Edict uh, is that a wagon of wheat doubles in price for every 50 Roman miles that it moves by land such as the prohibitive costs of transport. It's essentially the opposite of the way that the world economy has worked in the last generation in the Roman world labour costs are nothing and transport costs are everything as opposed to now where labour costs are everything and transport costs are highly marginal you, know, you just have to flick that inverse and suddenly an awful lot about how the Roman economy functions starts to make a whole deal more sense so uh, those kind of famines are not constant but they are regular and uh, we do have to think of a sort of uh, a general periodic refugee problem uh, surrounding the peasant population uh, and its subsistence within the Roman world and peasants uh, actually make the third and final Uh, category of my honourable mentions for getting down to the main event, as it were, as well. Uh, And that is, it it doesn't turn up so much in the sources, but we also have to reckon with uh, and I don't know if refugee is quite the right word but we certainly have to reckon with the potential for Roman peasant populations actually to move out of the Roman Empire and uh, find homes elsewhere these turn up from time to time There's one, uh, the one that's always ar- arrested my interest is that in uh, 358 the Emperor the II is mounting a series of campaigns in what are now uh, Slovakia and Hungary and as he's you know, establishing his military dominance over the region prior to setting up this diplomatic settlement he finds a whole bunch of Roman peasants who buggered off out of the empire and set up home happily uh, in the world beyond the frontier. There's no suggestion that anyone's made them do this uh, this looks like uh, entirely voluntary activity uh, it's worth, I think, just a little bit more thought about that. Um, the Roman Empire certainly had benefits for peasants. The Pax Romana is real. Uh, the most startling fact to emerge from archaeological investigation of the last. 40 years or so, made possible by field surveys and understanding of pottery distributions where settlements are and whatever, the thing that would actually have totally shocked uh, any historian of the Roman world writing before about 1950 to see their kind of view of what the late empire is like is that actually populations increased steadily in most areas of the empire across these 500 years that it is in existence. Um, there are one or two exceptions by the 4th century because of particular problems but in most areas populations reach a maximum in the Roman, in the Roman era in the 4th century in the late empire. Uh, and this has got a lot to do with kind of political stability that the empire creates. And the evidence is trickier for subsequently, but I don't think there's anyone who doesn't think that there's a considerable population decrease uh, once the Pax Romana has been removed from the scene that said the empire is run by and for a landowning elite uh, everywhere everywhere from Britain to Iraq, everyone is basically learning Latin, wearing togas uh, and living in villas or Greek depending on which half of the empire you're in. Uh, And the empire's legal structures are all about defining and protecting the private property of these wealthy landowners. Um, So from a peasant perspective, your main, I think, individual impression of the Roman Empire or experience of it would be some tax collectors turning up. That's what you would perceive. The benefits are real, Uh, more of you are going to survive also if you're a reasonably prosperous peasant, the fairly complex economic exchange structures that the empire sets up allows you opportunities for making money and maximising your economic position in all kinds of ways, but I think they would probably uh, be experientially much less impressive than the fact that people turn up regularly and demand some of your hard-earned wealth and really quite substantial amounts from it. So, those peasants with an option, who live fairly close to the frontier, uh, though there are other ways in which life beyond the frontier uh, would be more volatile, and I'll come to those in a minute, uh, and certainly was more volatile, uh, they might well, and obviously did, take the option sometimes to uh, clear off away from the reach of Roman Uh, tax collectors most of the empire's peasantry of course didn't have that much choice, if you're not very close to a frontier you're not well placed to clear off Um, so uh, I think this is a a fairly minority option or an option that's available to fairly small scale minority Um, and I won't discuss it any further uh, and more than that because I know we want to leave plenty of time for questions um, it is high uh, time to move on to uh, what I propose to spend the, the rest of the paper thinking about and I do think it's probably the reason I was asked to uh, contribute to the series but i never said so uh, namely the striking refugee phenomena that you see particularly but not solely in the late imperial period when the empire's authorities uh, faced apparently very large numbers of outsiders looking for asylum on the Roman world, uh, sometimes in quite clustered groupings. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about and others, these things on which I uh, cut my teeth. So what about these large-scale... Movements across imperial frontiers. Well, some aspects of this are highly contentious in con- uh, a very contested historiographical topic in the last two scholarly generations. Um, and I don't want to bog you down in it, but I think it's very reasonable to signal at least where some of the contentions lie. Uh, and actually, I'd be very interested to uh, hear your responses to the range of uh, options that have been taken in the face of the the difficulties that emerge when one tries to think about these uh, very large or apparently large refugee groups that turn up on the fringes of the Roman world Um, I think it will be uh, very interesting to get alternative perspectives uh, based on a whole different set of data uh, rather than you know, first historians or archaeologists of this period were all focused in on what we've got rather than necessarily thinking more broadly about the topic. So, a bit of background. What are we talking about? Um, what are the outlines of these kind of phenomena? Uh, I thought I'd cover three elements of background frequency, scale, and cause. On the frequency point, well, individual movement, not refugees but more, I guess, economic migrants in search of opportunity, that's clearly a constant throughout the Roman period, uh, not least from Augustus onwards. Half the Roman army is composed of non citizens and as the number of non-citizens goes down over time, the number of these being recruited from across the frontier increases. Um, we have both explicit and impressionist, impressionistic evidence of this. So that's a kind of backdrop of movement, and it's clearly informing uh, decisions and choices made when we're coming to the clusters. So there are, every so often, there are clusters as well. If you want a more or less comprehensive list of them, look in the appendix to Geoffrey De Sainte-Croix's *Class Struggle in the Ancient Greek World*. It lists pretty much every documented example. And there are, well, maybe some. I think there are sort of twenty odd in the list, covering the Roman imperial centuries, of which there were five number, so that's not constant but not irregular (coughs) not common but nonetheless something that did happen every so often it could happen more or less any time a case in point would be in uh, 359 a bunch of summations, they're called limigantes and I mention them because I'll come back to them they're quite an interesting example Uh, for all kinds of reasons turn up on the frontier in central Europe and request to be admitted uh, into the empire and there's nothing there's no sort of major geopolitical mayhem going on in 359 there's a bit of a mess in the middle Danube, which I'll come back to Uh, but you know there's not some kind of global colossal catastrophe that's generated this decision uh, it's quite a specific one limited to this specific group but there are moments where you get specific clusters of them third quarter of the second century uh, so called Marcomanic War one particular group turns up the Naristi and there's uh, mention of several others the evidence is not so good for that Late 3rd and very early 4th century, uh, slightly better evidence uh, in terms of the historical documentation for another cluster, and then much better documentation for a, for a third cluster uh, at two moments in the late 4th and early 5th century, 375 to 80 and 405 to ten there's also a final cluster with it where again the evidence is not so good round about the year 450 so it could happen any time but we do have these particular moments of cluster uh, how big are these groupings well this is one of the contested areas the old view used to look at all of these things as peoples in the great 19th century nationalist sense of the word so uh, completely mixed groups, population, age and gender uh, culturally united endogamous, they all have the same folk dances, if only we knew it and the same traditional costumes as well no doubt uh, that is not held by anyone, well actually that's not quite true not held by anyone sensible <laughs> uh, I should have had uh, at this point, uh, the evidence makes it clear uh, there's much more volatility in these groups than that and the way that they form and unform. And I'll come back to some of that in more detail. One response to that evidence for volatility, you might say, is to go to kind of the other extreme from the people's hypothesis and imagine that even these large groups, as they appear to be in the sources, are no more than warbands. So a few hundred blokes, basically maybe with a few hangers-on, but not more than that. That's held by a small but not an influential group of modern scholars, but I have to say the specific evidence, and you obviously can contest the value of the evidence, and they would, but the actual evidence that we have, such as it is, suggests a more interestingly mixed picture than that. There uh, is... Clearly, some warband activity involved in these refugees, where it's mostly male and not that many. Some of these groups who turn up from time to time uh, aren't enormous. The Sarmatian Limigantes in 359 clearly aren't very large. A few thousand people at most, not tens of thousands. Um, but some seemingly are much larger. There is pretty good evidence, you know, in the sense that anything from the fourth century is pretty good evidence. It's all rubbish, really, you'd all laugh at it. But, you know, relative to what we have normally for this kind of period, it's really quite good in the sense that it's written by someone actually at the time who apparently has very detailed knowledge of what's going on. I mean, that's the best we can do, but certainly implies substantially larger forces than that, namely 10,000-plus warriors and families. Two separate groups of Goths in 376 fall under that kind of heading. Two more groups of Goths in the Balkans 100 years later, 470s and 480s, and uh, Vandals in two separate groups of that sort of size and numerous Alans in 405, six, uh, and another group led by Radagaisus into Italy in 405. All of these, so that's two, four, six, seven, maybe eight or nine groups mentioned, uh, where the evidence, such as it is, comes up to that kind of order of magnitude. And I would add, there's not only, you know, numbers are always crap in ancient sources, but not only explicit mention numbers, there's also kind of narrative confirmation in the sense of what these groups are able to do, the amount of mayhem they're able to cause inside the Roman Empire, the kinds of Roman armies that they're able either to defeat outright or to parry, which again uh, are suggestive of substantial scale. So, range of scales. Causes, uh, causes of this pretty regular, if not constant, volatility uh, in the frontier region. I think lie in a combination of basic features of how the frontier, how the frontier region actually operated. The the kind of uh, relationship that the Roman Empire established with frontier regions uh, paying subsidies to favoured dynasts after they've created um, a diplomatic settlement uh, granting favourable trade terms uh, which allowed them these same dynasts to take lots of customs tolls as well even the fact that you're in uh, a geographically (coughs) proximate position which allows profitable raiding tended to generate much more wealth in the frontier region uh, beyond the Roman world than anywhere else beyond the Roman world. So you have to think of uh, a band of uh, wealth building up in the sort of 50 to 100 kilometre band around the fringes of the empire. Uh, And it's clear that this wealth generated over time political transformation within that kind of zone. And by the time we get to the 4th century, the destabilizing effects of unequal wealth in the areas beyond the frontier uh, generates two kinds of problems. One is Competition between groups actually in the frontier region for the best positions this is where the Salmation come in they'd previously been absolutely bang on the frontier uh, Constantius in 358 makes them move away from the frontier they don't like that world they're not able to fight their way back into the frontier dominant position and in 359 a year later they request asylum inside the Roman Empire same uh, kind of uh, volatile competition I think underlies the cluster of intrusions that we see uh, in the 450s this is the moment when Attila's Hunnic Empire is unravelling in a blaze of violence quite clearly and some groups are bailing out of that competition Uh, and that competition is all about the wealth that is collecting in the frontier zone so I think We have to envisage plenty of uh, inter-frontier zone competition. That's one cause of spillage, if you like, over into the Roman Empire. Then, much more occasionally, I think you get a more structural form of problem which underlies some of the bigger intrusions. And that is, you have to think of the frontier zone as a whole, as a kind of inner periphery around the Roman Empire uh, abnormally wealthy and then there's an outer periphery uh, which where the groups are certainly in some kind of contact with the inner periphery on a regular basis but every so often you see groups from the outer periphery organise themselves to move into the valuable positions right much closer to the Roman Empire kicking off all kinds of chaos in the frontier zone itself I'm very confident that that's uh, how we should understand what's happening in the 3rd century, that what lies behind the cluster of uh, late 3rd and very early 4th century uh, refugee problems that the Roman Empire is faced with. Uh, Goths are moving into the Black Sea region. Uh, other groups, Sarmatians and Carpi, if you're interested in the precise names, uh, find themselves, find life becoming much more difficult and the Roman Empire mops up quite a lot of refugees uh, at that point. Uh, It's also, to my mind, the way to understand the intrusions of the 370s and the first decade of the 5th century. Uh, This is about the uh, intrusion of Hunnic power from the outer periphery, this time eastern outer periphery rather than the northern outer periphery, into the immediate frontier zone. So I think the way that the empire intersects with its neighbours uh, underlies most of the refugee problem we see, but in two particular types two distinguishable types of form, the sort of inner zone competition, uh, and then every so often much more structural shift as groups in the outer periphery organise themselves to take possession of the inner periphery. So that's the kind of phenomenon that the empire is, or the range of phenomena, I might say, that the empire is faced with. How did it deal with refugees? It did have a discourse of the refugee, uh, and its commentators draw on that explicitly from time to time. It's reflected in the way that the Limigantes again in 359, sorry, they keep coming around, but a convenient example uh, and they don't get talked about much, which I think is very unfair. So we're uh, bringing them back bringing them back into the picture. Oh, Limigante's day here at Queen Elizabeth's house. Uh, no doubt they'll then be forgotten about forever again. Uh, the, the way that they're discussed, their reception onto Roman soil, they are explicitly cast as refugees in need of sanctuary. Also, uh, the Goths in 376, the first set of Goths who come to the fringe of the Roman world we have the echoes clearly of an official statement uh, made about them uh, at the court of the then Eastern Emperor which puts them as refugees who have been kicked out of their home territory by nasty Huns and it's only right to look after them there is a humanitarian component to this discourse uh, but it's also practical too. The other side that goes along with we must help them out is that A, they'll provide us with new uh, tax-paying productive peasantry and B, if they've got big biceps they can serve in the army and that'll be useful too. The Roman Empire combined, its discourse combines both uh, humanitarian side uh, also with uh, as a sort of practical approach or a practical set of justifications. Uh, and basically, hardly anyone lives in so I Australia. Mean, compared to the modern day, there's hardly anyone there. There's always a labour shortage. You can always use labour. So, you know, this is uh, always a good thing to have. But uh, this set of justifications turns up often enough to make clear what the discourse was, but you can't always believe it, because it's coming from imperial spokesmen, and by their nature imperial pronouncements tend to hide as much as they reveal Uh, if we take the example of the Goths in 376, we're told by the spokesman that the emperor was full of joy to see all these people turn up on his frontier uh, completely uh, unmitigated joy <laughs> well at that particular moment he's busy fighting a war in Persia you tell me which ruler would be when he's busy fighting uh, a major war on one frontier would like to see his other one go up in smoke you know a strong smell of horseshit surrounds this pronouncement and you see it actually in the in the policy that's pursuit. Because actually three groups of Goths turn up on the Danube, and they only let one in. And they actually they let one in and keep two out. And what they're clearly doing is damage limitation. And there's a whole set of other evidence which we could go through, which makes that point. They decide that the best they can achieve is to keep one out. Um, And that's what they do. However, emperors are chosen by God. Uh, They're supposed to be divinely guided. You can't have a bunch of barbarians ever dictating to God's chosen ruler. So we have to pretend we're really in charge of the situation. Again, this is not uh, unknown from the modern world either. Having made the decision not just to exclude, or that it's not possible to exclude in some cases, then we see two variants of normal policy being pursued towards um, refugee groups coming across the frontier. I suspect it's really a spectrum. And there's probably an infinite variety of uh, precise arrangements that are made with individual groups. But we can detect two ends of a spectrum from the examples that we see. Example would be Skiri, who turn up in the Balkans in 409, or large-scale rank and file of a group who invade Italy in 405. The empire establishes total military domination over the group, eliminates political leadership, uh, disperses the refugees very widely. The Skiri in the Balkans in 409... Uh, have to be dispersed from the Balkans they have to be sent to Asia Minor they have to to be kicked out of the Balkans absolutely straightforwardly and they are dispersed as individuals uh, either as slaves or serfs there is no intimation in the sources that any kind of familial shape or any other group identity is respected in this process. It is uh, essentially the liquidation of the group, the dispersal of the people, usually in context of quite a lot of them being killed, certainly a total extermination of any group identity that they might have had. Less harsh end of... The spectrum, which is what the Sarmatian Limigantes were angling for in 359, and what groups like Carpi and other Sarmatians uh, clearly received in the very late third and early fourth century, is dispersed a bit, Political, overall political leadership extinguished certainly, but not dispersed to totally different geographical zones. Sarmatians and Carpi. Uh, accepted in the empire on the Danube frontier are distributed along the Danube frontier. They're not you know carted off bloody miles to Asia Minor to totally foreign contexts. They're also allowed to settle in clusters in, I don't know, village village-sized communities are mentioned. I have no idea how big is a village, no idea. But you can see that probably familial or Clan lines are being respected. The state is uh, settling people on terms that allow some kind of familial continuity, uh, and the possibilities allowed that they will—these males from these groups will serve in the Roman army again, possibly in units with their uh, peers. You know, the group from their own group, giving them access to nice money making roles and whatever. They're not, uh, so some sense of social uh, continuity and identity is preserved, and the potential that they might uh, benefit from uh, wealth of the empire by military service, that is allowed. The difference between the two, when the harsh, more harsh, Set, set in and the uh, less harsh set in is basically circumstance of arrival. If you turn up as refugees and start to invade, Roman state gets very nasty and the harsh set of terms are imposed upon you. Uh, if, even in the case of the Skiri, they were a subject group of a Hunnic overlord, they weren't in charge of the process, but the Roman state made no distinction about that. They're involved in an aggressive approach to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire treats them as uh, war booty, essentially. Uh, as opposed to when the less harsh, less harsh sets in, much more process of negotiation. But these moments of negotiation are always stressful. Last mention of Sarmatian it all goes horribly wrong there's a ceremony set up the emperor is standing on a dais ready to welcome his new subjects into the empire and suddenly the Sarmatians pick up their weapons and make a rush at it uh, and in fact you see they all get killed because there are enough Roman troops in the scene actually to dominate the situation that meant by Romans are military, militarily dominant in the ideal type of refugee reception but it can go wrong. Right. I mean, it's not clear why I'm wrong. So that's, uh, that, as it were, is the norm. The Roman ideal type. You're totally in charge of the situation. Anyone who's too aggressive gets treated like crack. Anyone who's willing to negotiate with you, then you've got a set of less harsh terms that you can offer, and a set of uh, less harsh uh, Mechanisms of absorbing them into imperial space from about the 410s though, uh, and this is the last point uh, we start to see the, the normal pattern the normal range which had existed for over 300 years, you know the way it's been done in the 1st century uh, AD and the 1st century BC is exactly the same as it's been done in the 4th century insofar as we can see. Uh, it starts to change. And we start to see the emergence of refugee settlements where political structures pre-existing uh, amongst the groups are not demolished. So even in the less harsh, normal form of settlement, we don't leave overarching political structures, i.e. kings, in position. They're always removed and the potential that uh, a group of refugees might reconstitute themselves as a military political force that would be inimical to uh, the interests of the imperial state, that is removed. Early 5th century onwards we start to see a change to that. Um, First specific example, settlement of Goths in Aquitaine in 418, but there are others as well. Uh, There's a substantial Uh, argument about why this changes, but actually the evidence is pretty straightforward. It changes because the Roman state is unable to prevent the change. And the change is extremely dangerous to its interests. Uh, The groups settle by treaty in the first instance, but being left intact, they then start to maximise their position and uh, the Roman state essentially functions by taxing agricultural production Uh, if outside groups start to hemorrhage away its provincial base, it's losing its tax base and its capacity to maintain itself. And this is sort of what works itself out in the 5th century. So uh, no, I think the Roman empires straightforwardly as the detailed evidence suggests, can drag kicking and screaming to the altar of these new marital relationships with uh, undeconstructed outside groups. Which brings me to the last topic I'd like to talk about, which is these groups, actually, especially these new groups that turn up in the late 4th and 5th century with whom these new relationships uh, are formed. Because I think this is what will look particularly odd to the modern eye from the reading that I've done. They don't look like modern refugee groups uh, in the sense that they are apparently not only large, and obviously refugee groups from political contexts often are large, but they apparently are capable of maintaining cohesion and organisation while moving in stages over considerable distances. It's much contested. I mean, these are the things that uh, always used to be described as peoples. They're clearly not peoples. They're not ancient. Uh, All of the groups with whom the Roman Empire is forced to grant this new type of relationship in the 5th century can be shown to be created on the march out of pre-existing subgroups. So this first group uh, with whom such a relationship is known, uh, the so-called Visigoths, who settle in Aquitaine in 418. The the Goths who settle in Aquitaine uh, are an alliance of two of the groups who crossed into the empire in 376, plus a whole series of other recruits that have been picked up on route. And... Um, particularly in the reign of Alaric between 395 and 410. It is a new confederation built within a living political lifetime. Uh, it's exceedingly unlikely that they all have the same folk dances and folk costumes. Exceedingly unlikely. But the evidence strongly suggests that they had enough, at least political and military identity, to uh, put up enough of a fight to Roman counteraction, which was substantial. Uh, the Roman Empire has four goes at beating the crap out of them uh, in a serious way, and fails in the course of the sort of 40 years between 376 and 418, uh, in order to make the Roman state grow up on this new relationship. And the Vandals who take over in North Africa, they are also a new confederation of this type, made up in that case uh, of uh, culturally quite disparate subgroups at least according to uh, what the evidence says there's certainly a strand of scholarship uh, as it were in the historiography of my period that's very worried by these groups very worried that they could have that shape and form and I think it's certainly problematic on the other hand the actual historical narrative becomes almost inexplicable if if they don't have these uh, particular characteristics of size and political durability. Because they do have to face down very determined attempts by the Roman state to dismantle them. Uh, and And it's kind of how to balance that that is at the heart of much of the discussion uh, in, um, in the sort of recent years about these groups uh, you know, they're not peoples they are new creations you can also show that some of the members of them uh, are much more attached to the new identity that's being created than others um, some uh, when opportunity arises clear off and take other options but there's a substantial enough core who buy into these new identities that are being created, actually then to fight the wars that are at the heart of the um, undermining of the Roman imperial structure. So uh, I'm confident that they need to be, as it were, pretty large and pretty coherent, or the disappearance of the empire doesn't make any sense. But I'm aware that this generates uh, interesting questions about how they're structured and how they're formed. Uh, My suspicion for what it's worth uh, is that we come back to frontier zone dynamics for much of the explanation. And I'll just briefly because what you see between the 1st and the 4th century is the appearance of larger and more stable cross frontier, frontier parties around the Roman Empire pretty much in every region where it exists and I think these kind of wealth generating contexts, contacts contexts and the competitive political alliances that grow up to control those flows of wealth uh, at the heart of that political transformation. But I think what it means is that when you get to the sort of cluster of refugee intrusions in the late empire, as opposed to the early empire, then you don't need to stick together too many of the groups from across the frontier to create something that's large enough to face down an emperor in his field army. So I suspect... But as it were, the long durée feeds into the particular moment of crisis uh, that we see to create the sort of perfect storm for the Roman Empire. And it's at that moment that, uh, and it's that long term transformation in the frontier zone that makes it possible uh, for these refugees actually then to turn into predators. But that's uh, an argument that's going to run and run, and it's more than time to stop. Thank you very much for more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the refugee study center please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect